Well, hello and welcome back to the Archaeology News. Yes, it's myself, David Connolly, wishing you um, a belated solstice greetings. Well, actually, I've been quite busy myself and up in Aberdeenshire with a fabulous group, Nessars, you know who you are, where we've been investigating a circle on a secret location somewhere in Aberdeenshire. Well, that circle turned out to be the platform for an Iron Age house. And looking around a bit more, it turned out it wasn't alone. There were, in fact, at least seven more. So, well done us, we discovered an Iron Age village. How good is that? But you don't want to hear about uh, Iron Age villages in Aberdeenshire, or perhaps you do. But I know you do want to hear about the archaeology news from both Stone Pages and the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources website, as well as, of course, Past Horizons. So, although all the stories have been collected from various sources, you can view details on each story, including the source, at the Stone Pages website at news.stonepages.com. What have we got? Well, we've got the Carwin Coit rebuilt and completed down there in the southwest of England. And then a fabulous story, an ancient skull revealing the secrets of Bronze Age Siberian society. The melting Yukon ice reveals prehistoric treasures. And slightly warmer, we head off to Australia where we learn about 45,000 year old artifacts. Celestial and landscape interactions of megalithic sites is one of the main articles that's just come out on Past Horizons. And we've got the DNA of first Near Eastern farmers completely sequenced. It's really going to help in the future. We'll finish off with a rather odd story, which I'm looking forward to getting to, about the 3,000-year-old remains of an infant found in Ireland at the home of Halloween. Well, let's start back down in Cornwall, where work to rebuild a collapsed ancient monument there has been completed on the day of the summer solstice. The Carwinan Coit, or the Giant's Coit, is a 5,000-year-old burial chamber near Troon in West Cornwall. It collapsed back in 1966. Just an ugly pile of stones. The burial chamber had fallen apart, but with help from archaeologists, it's now standing proud once again. Looks quite magnificent, in fact. Replacing the capstone was the last piece of work carried out by the owners of the Sustainable Trust who bought the site in 2009. Leading architect on the project, Jackie Nowakowski, said that it's a magical moment to get to this stage in the project. He feels exhilarated bringing the capstone home and making the monument complete once again. The Cornwall Sustainable Trust and Cornwall Heritage Trust employed professional archaeologists to help research and rebuild it. Initial work saw two support stones replaced in their original Neolithic stone sockets, but the third stone had to be adjusted to comply with health and safety regulations. The main capstone, measuring 3.3 metres and 2.5 metres wide and long, is 30 centimetres thick, and it was lowered into position by a large crane. Quite spectacular. Well worth actually searching that one out on the web and watching the progress. And now, unlike most hunter-gatherer societies of the Bronze Age, the people of the Bakal region of northern Siberia, that's in Russia, respected their dead with formal graves. One particular specimen was so unique that bioarchaeologist Angela Leverse, associate professor of the University of Saskatchewan, travelled right across the world to bring it. Maybe she was going the wrong way if she'd gone. Anyway... Um, travelled across the world to bring it back to the Canadian light source synchrotron for examination. 
She'd known about the skull for 10 years and there were a couple of things about it that fascinated her. The first is that the individual is missing, missing, sorry, missing myself, missing two front teeth on the lower jaw. And the second is a very obvious stone projectile tip embedded in the exact same spot on the mandible where the two incisors should be. Experts knew it was a projectile, but didn't know if it occurred years after the so years before the individual had died, or if it happened around the same time as his death. Leverse suspected it happened earlier and had something to do with the unusual missing teeth. The specimen was found in a cemetery northwest of Lake Bikal. The skeleton was buried ceremoniously with a nephrite disc and four arrowheads, one of which was broken and found in the eye socket. After radiocarbon dating and analysis, it was determined the individual was a 35 to 40 year old male from the early Bronze Age. That's around 4420 to 3995 BP. Researchers, however, were able to reconstruct the arrowhead fragment from the jaw using advanced imaging techniques and then discovered that the missing teeth had absolutely nothing to do with the projectile. The individual had a rare case of agenesis, where the two central incisors never fully form, a genetic trait that affects only a tiny minority of people. In fact, this is only the first example in the archaeological literature of its occurrence. The projectile tip, it turned out, was the very piece that fitted onto the arrowhead placed in the eye socket. Laverse suspects that the arrowhead was removed from the man's face, either during a struggle or before burial, but that would have been the cause of his death. So have we discovered an example of Bronze Age murder? Climate change. Yes, that word again. Climate change is eating away at the edges of mountain ice patches in Yukon in Canada, revealing droppings left by caribou herds thousands of years ago and the tools lost by the hunters who once pursued them. According to Greg Hare, a veteran archaeologist with the Yukon government, climate conditions on about two dozen Yukon mountains have proven to be almost uniquely suited to preserving organic material. Unlike glaciers that move, slowly grinding down any artefacts trapped in them, the Yukon ice patches tend to remain stable. Or at least they did, until gradual warming over the past decades began to shrink them and reveal their treasures. Among the finds, wooden darts as old as 9,000 years, some complete with stone points, sinew bindings and even bits of feather and traces of ochre decoration. The Ice Patch Archaeology Project was organised around annual helicopter trips into the mountains. The window of opportunity was limited, sometimes only a week every August. First Nations were partners from the outset and their field assistants often made the key finds. But last summer, I'm afraid the search was cancelled entirely when Yukon native groups went to court to block a routine archaeological permit. Rather than engage in a legal battle, the Yukon government decided to withdraw the application. Neither the archaeologists nor the First Nation leaders involved would explain the clash, with both sides saying that they were close to finalising a new memorandum of understanding. Well, let's hope that uh, we can bring all these people back together again and continue this amazing community work to look at the slowly and sadly diminishing ice patch archaeology. 
An archaeological dig has revealed artefacts of early human occupation in Australia. The discovery of the artefacts of animal bone and charcoal at the Gangamaya Cave, meaning House on the Hill, in the Pilbara district of Western Australia, and the subject of a scientific paper that has not yet been submitted to archaeological journals. So you heard it here. Well, maybe not first, but um, not bad. The items analysed through carbon dating techniques indicate that the cave dates more than 45,000 years ago. The cave, close to an active iron ore mine, is of even more significance because it is believed to have been settled continuously and right through the Ice Age up until 1,700 years ago. Kate Morse, Director of Archaeology at Fremantle Heritage Consultancy, Big Island Research remains cautious about making claims for the site's significance because so far only a one metre square area has been excavated. Asked if the cave could be the site of the earliest human settlement in Australia, she said, we've only got the one date and she prefers to get more dates before making any kind of claim. Good on you there. However, it certainly is a very old site. The discovery has, however, caused some division between the community, with one elder, Eddie McPhee, saying he believes the mining company Atlas and the Yamachi Marpla Aboriginal Corporation, representing the local traditional owners, were planning to destroy sacred sites and accompanying dreaming tracks. But Big Island says that it has worked very closely with the traditional owners on the project and has been well supported by the mining company. It says further excavation is planned in the near future. Now, a good old Past the Horizons article here from our friend uh, Gail Higginbottom. It's new research from her and her colleagues building on the work of Clive Ruggles, who's the Professor of Archaeoastronomy in the School of Archaeology and Ancient History at Ancient, uh, uh, sorry, the Ancient Leicester at the University of Lecture. Leicester. Deary me, what's become of me? Dr Higginbottom is a visiting research fellow of the Australian National University and the University of Adelaide. She's also a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, cultural landscape archaeologist and theorist. She's been studying astronomy, and this is where we get the article. Focusing on the earliest periods of the intensive monument building in the prehistoric Scotland, around about 3000 to 1000 BCE, the new study sought to identify how humans chose and made places that were important to them, examining how megalithic monuments and the natural environment were used to create landscapes embedded with cultural meaning. The earliest confirmed dates for standing stone monuments in Britain are late Neolithic, around 3000 BCE in the north and west of Scotland. And from the Neolithic to the Bronze Age, the two most common elements associated with standing stones in Scotland were human burials and astronomical phenomena. During the Bronze Age, there are continuing and intensifying traditions for the use of standing stones, carved stones and cremations, as well as the introduction of individual burials and a variety of care and styles. In addition to building new sites, Bronze Age people reuse sites by modifying their structure, maintaining and even expanding the association of standing stones and megaliths with the dead. It's clear that some form of continuity despite the great variety of forms and geographical distribution, took place within the time frame. Across the western Scottish Isles, as well as on the mainland, a greater number of standing stones than previously thought were deliberately orientated to either the sun or the moon at specific astronomical events. 
the range of dates for linear settings in particular is in the middle to late Bronze Age. Expanding the area of Ruggles' work, the team generated 2D horizon profiles for every site, which were compared using statistical analysis software. Extending their study into 3D revealed the standing stones are almost are among the most complex situated monuments in the prehistory of Scotland. The 3D models indicate the kinds of events connected to the places where the monuments stand. To understand how these would have appeared to people at the time, the researchers chose specific events that they knew could be seen in the past. One, for example, was a full moon near the southern major standstill, which can only occur at the summer solstice. Computer reconstructions of such events revealed many celestial and landscape interactions. Every site contained specific landscape variables along with astronomical ones, and they shared enough to be statistically significant. At the time of their original construction, the monuments clearly held a relationship with each other and the surrounding landscape. The review of Standing Stone seems to indicate that the interest in this astronomical event did not simply emerge in the Bronze Age, but had an earlier origin. Well, you're going to be hearing a lot more about uh, archaeoastronomy in the future. Uh, as uh, well, yours truly has actually uh, joined up with uh, the new journal Skyscape, and I'm heading off up to Orkney along with uh, Maggie and uh, Dougie Scott to actually take some uh, field readings on astronomical events that may have occurred. Exciting. Mm. Now, the mitochondrial DNA of the first Near Eastern farmers has been sequenced for the first time. Experts analysed samples from three sites in the birthplace of Neolithic agricultural practices, the Middle Euphrates Basin and the oasis of Damascus in present-day Syria, dating back to around 8000 BCE. Agricultural and husbandry practices originated around 12,000 years ago in a region of the Near East known as the Fertile Crescent a profound social, cultural and economic transformation. Whether it was a population migration or a cultural adoption has been widely debated for the past 50 years. The genetic composition of this first Neolithic population has remained a mystery, although some advances in the genetics of European Neolithic populations were made during the past decade. Professor and co-author Daniel Turban points out that the results are the first ones regarding the first Near Eastern farmers, the genetic stock of the original Neolithic. However, other data has been published about European first farmers in Catalonia, the Basque Country and in Germany. The study provides a new framework to interpret the results of the other studies about European Neolithic populations. Genetic affinities have been observed between the mitochondrial DNA of first Neolithic populations and the DNA of the first Catalan and German fathers, uh, farmers. This suggests that Neolithic expansion probably took place through pioneer migrations of small groups. Moreover, the two main migration routes, Mediterranean and European, might have been genetically linked. According to a co-author, the most significant conclusion is that a degree of genetic similarity between the populations of the Fertile Crescent and those of Cyprus and Crete supports the hypothesis that Neolithic spread in Europe took place through pioneer seafaring colonisation, not just through land colonisation expansion through Anatolia. 
Other studies have already provided signs of an alternative scenario, according to Turbun. Recent archaeological finds have proved that the Neolithic arrived in Cyprus about 10,600 years ago, some years after the first documentation of agricultural practices in the Near East. Architecture and burial models found on Cyprus are similar to those in the middle Euphrates Basin, indicating a direct colonisation of the territories. Turban stresses, adding that radiocarbon dates from different Neolithic sites in the Near East and Europe also suggest a first seafaring expansion through Cyprus. So we're starting to get a much more nuanced understanding of the spread of this uh, agricultural revolution. People moving out from the Middle Euphrates Basin, both through land, but also, and more importantly, using the Mediterranean as their superhighway. Now we finish off with my um, my, f- my favourite uh, um, chuckled one. It's a story about human remains, thought to be that of a 3,000-year-old baby, being found during an archaeological uh, project at uh, Meath in Ireland. The site's reputed to be the birthplace of Halloween, though I must admit they don't go on to explain uh, where they got that one from. The remains were found at the base of a 1.5-metre ditch at Talachta uh, near Athboy. It's believed that the fully intact skeleton is that of a baby between 7 to 10 months old. The remains are being taken away to the School of Archaeology at University College Dublin for further examination. The remains were found during a three-week excavation at the site, and surveys have been using airborne laser, good old LIDAR, and geophysical techniques to reveal the area was a key ritual site. I'd love to know what setting they uh, used on their airborne laser for that one. It obviously, actually, though, is a very important site. It's been a place of ritual assembly, and there's only other three other sites like this in Ireland, uh, the others being the famous Tara site and Rathcrochan in uh, County Roscommon. This site, which is uh, Talachta, also known as the Hill of Ward, got its name from the daughter of the Druid, Mogaruth, who is said to have died on the hill after giving birth to triplets, and whose remains, according to legend, are buried under the hill. The latest excavations have also unearthed evidence of much burning, which could have been ritual fires, or the evidence of glassmaking. Well, make your mind up there. Adding that he now hopes that the latest findings will strengthen the case for more funding. Anyway, on that uh, bombshell, I can of course recommend that you pop along to PastHorizonsPR.com for lots and lots of extra news. Why not join us on Facebook as well? Just put in Archaeology Trials and Tools and there you will find us. You can also find more archaeological and heritage employment opportunities, as well as a UK heritage calendar, library, guidance sector, there's directory, there's so much more on Badger. That's www.bajr.org. And more, of course, can always be found at Stonepages, the fabulous Stonepages website, news.stonepages.com. So thank you very much for listening to us, and we hope to return to you next week where um, actually I'll have just finished, hopefully, geophysics and the topographic survey of yet another hill fort, or should I say, banked enclosure of uncertain date and function. We'll be getting back to you. Mm-hmm.